0: Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy. And today on our show, we've got another amazing guest. He is a visionary biomedical gerontologist, the author of Ending Aging, and is the president of for the Longevity Escape Velocity Foundation. Welcome to the show, Aubrey de
1: Grey. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. And how so are you, I'm sure. Um, and thank you for having me on the show.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: This is exciting.
0: Uh, so let's hit it off. Uh, why are you so scared of aging?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not scared, honestly. I don't do scared. I'm nice. just not in favor of it. I think that <laughs> is very clear indeed that aging is humanity's number one problem, the thing that causes the largest amount of suffering to humanity in today's world. And I want to fix that. I have always, since I was a kid, been driven by the goal of making a difference in the world, working on the most important problems and trying my best to make a contribution. And I am very privileged that I've been able to end up you know, leading a whole movement that is indeed focusing increasingly with every day that goes by on this one problem that is by far, head and shoulders, more serious than any other.
0: Right. Now, when you say aging, though, this can mean aging at any age, right? And what are some of the things you've seen that you're like, this just doesn't need to happen?
1: Well, so yeah, I mean, there are definitional issues here around the terminology. And, you know, for quite a long time, many of my colleagues who are working on the biology of aging used to prefer to use the word senescence rather than the word aging. But honestly, it's a bit of a wetter time because everybody really knows what we're talking about. We're talking about the functional decline that happens late in life when you've been born a long time ago, the mental decline and the physical decline. That is what needs to stop. The way that we are as young adults in full mental and physical function is the way that we are entitled to remain. However long ago we were born. And that's the goal. Nice. Now
0: being in audio format, for the most part uh, most people cannot look at that beautiful beard you have. Um, that probably is like the rings on a tree trunk. It tells us, tells us age. But how old are you and how young do you feel then?
1: <laughs> I'm sixty years old. Um my beard actually is not a particular measure of that. I started growing it when I was thirty-two and it was already this long two years later. So since then I don't trim it, but it um you know, it just seems to maintain an equilibrium. You know, bits fall out, um that kind of thing. And I stroke it all the time. I can't I, I I'm compulsively playing with it, I'm afraid. Um, uh, How do I feel? Oh yeah, I feel, and indeed, uh, you know, it's not just how I feel, but what I'm told uh, as a result of high-end, very thorough checkups, um, I'm a lot younger than 60 biologically. And of course that's what matters. Right, so how are you measuring that? And
0: what would you say is kind of these benchmarks that you're looking for to, to know your biological kind of age or, or uh, where you're at?
1: Yeah, let me give quite a long answer to that, because I want to not only talk about myself, but about what people in the audience might want to do. So um, first thing I want to say is measurement is at this point, absolutely critical. The um, differences between different people's metabolism are so important in terms of what's valuable to what people that there's no way one can generalize. So Uh, both in terms of biological age and in terms of just basal, the kind of metabolism one had as a young adult, you know, one's got to know as much as possible in order to make the best decisions. That is actually going to cease to be as true as it is now in the future, because the rejuvenation medicines that we're going to be developing, and which I'm sure we're going to be talking about shortly, um, are going to be pretty much universal they because they are repairing damage actually reversing biological age rather than simply slowing it down um, they will essentially work on everybody just that one might have to use them a little more frequently or thoroughly on some people than on others so um, but that's for the but that's for the future for now the interventions that we have which can't do very much you know even to the extent that they can do anything it depends on who you are so then the question is, how do you make those measurements as you asked? Now I have the privilege, you know, being a high profile member of this community that people consider it in their interests to, um, give me really high end, um, uh, checkups for free. So I right, get this yeah. kind of thing, you know, every, every few years, actually it's more like every year now. And, um, you know, really high-end stuff. Uh, you know, they measure like 150 different things in your blood and they do, you know, full body MRI and, um, and uh, you know, abdominal ultrasound and uh, all manner of cognitive tests and, you know, physiological tests. So, yeah, I have a pretty thorough understanding of what state I'm in. One thing that I have not yet had done is any epigenetic tests. These are things that many of the audience heard of because they're very much in the news these days but they are very much still a work in progress they don't really measure up to the level of utility and reliability and reproducibility that we need in order to um you know to, to, to have them compete with the more traditional methods of checking one's biological age that we've had in the past they, they may well get there though
0: um, are they so good? Then, are they good little guides, though, of how you're doing and things to look for? Um, for instance, I did a genomics test by myself, and Sorry, uh, my detoxification pathways were were pretty pretty suboptimal. Um, so, is that a good guidebook then, or is it still kind of maybe a little misleading, or is it is it something we should
1: maybe look into more? So any one measure, or even any one or two Mm -hmm. measures, can be misleading. Right. Um, What I was going to say in conclusion conclusion of my previous answer was I wanted to talk about what people can do who do not have the financial resources that, for example, Brian Johnson has. He's a famous person in this field right now. Or for that matter, the prestige that I have that means that the financial resources are less necessary. There's plenty you can do. A lot of the tests that need to be done are ones that can be done almost for free. There's something called grip strength, which is literally how tightly you can grip something. There are very simple machines that you can buy very easily that measure grip strength accurately. And it turns out that's one thing that declines very reliably with age. And the better you're doing there, the better your biological age. It's only one measure, like I said. It's not reliable in and of itself, but it's a very simple one. Gate speed, how rapidly you can walk 100 yards. You know, um, of course, cognitive tests, you know, how rapidly you can do a Sudoku puzzle or whatever, um, memory tests. These are pretty simple things that can be done for pennies. And yes. certain blood tests as well. The uh, blood test aspects um, and, you know, other functions like that are becoming more and more accessible because of the steady advancement of wearables, you know, which started with things like the Fitbit you know they're getting better and better all the time, so yes, yeah. this is not this is not out of financial reach. I
0: I love it, and being in functional neurology, I love how you mentioned gait walking, and uh, I still remember one of the quotes out of I I believe it was Demyers, uh, the neurologic examination, um, saying that if he could only use one test you would see how people walk. And you look at the different pathological gates and from a clinical aspect, yeah, there's hard pathology where it's diagnosable. But if you dial it back a little and a few notches, you realize that people are in this dysfunction and you just don't know when it's going to be a full-blown diagnosis, but you're pretty much guaranteed they're on the path. Is that what you're seeing in these tests then? Is that they are um, basically walking you
1: literally into where you're going to be when you're aging. Well, remember I'm a PhD, not an MD. So I don't do these tests on other people, (laughs) Um, but certainly the MDs that I've spoken to about such things say things very similar to what you just said. Right. Absolutely.
0: And yeah, is it coming out more and more in the research then? Are you seeing it?
1: Well, of course, the research that I do and that I oversee is is in the laboratory, not in the clinic. I'm interested in cell culture and mice and pretty much nothing else because once things have got to the point where they're working reasonably well in mice, uh, enough other people with better expertise, better clinical expertise than me are are getting interested and I can hand it off to other people within the community. I'm all about that. I'm all about the collaboration aspect. Um, But yes, absolutely. I mean, in in our mouse experiment that we're doing right now, which I'm sure we'll get onto in a moment, um, we are measuring a bunch of different things of that nature. And certainly one of them is that kind of thing. Um, uh, Ambulatory agility, you know, treadmill tests. There's something called the rotor rod that I'm sure you've heard of where you get the mice to try to stay. Um, perched on a rod when it's rotating, and the better they can do it, that means the greater agility they have. Uh, yeah.
0: All right. Well, what are you seeing in the cell cultures and in the mice, then, that that is giving us hope that this is actually something that we can move forward with?
1: Yeah, that that, that falls into two categories. So let me give a slightly complicated answer. Um the whole damage repair approach, the rejuvenation approach that I've been pursuing for 20 odd years now, is necessarily, by, almost by definition, a divide and conquer approach that requires the application of a bunch of different treatments, each of them targeted against a different type of damage, molecular or cellular damage. And they may have um, knock-on effects, knock-on benefits on things that are not their direct targets, and that's great. Um, But ultimately, you still need a panel of these things to cover all the bases, because you do need to cover all the bases pretty well in order to achieve the main objective of postponing the health problems of late life um, in most people and, indeed, even in people who are already doing quite well. So... That, of course, means that different areas of research into developing these things are going to have different degrees of difficulty. Now, in my previous foundation, Sense Research Foundation, the main focus was on the most challenging of those those technologies. And the reason we did that was because those were the things that were being neglected by other people on account of other people have different incentive structures. You know, they need to get publications in high profile journals every 10 minutes or Right. Yes. Holders profits every you know in, in short order. So um, so because we are funded entirely by philanthropy, uh, almost entirely, uh, that made that, that mean, meant it fell to us to fill in that gap and get the difficult things to catch up. So, in um, since research foundation, nearly all of our work was in cell culture one way or another. But at the Foundation, what we have been able to do really as a result of the work that others have been doing over the years is we've been able to start capitalizing on the easier of the various of this panel which had been which we had previously deprioritized and the reason for the change is because now there has been enough progress on those easier things in other people's laboratories that we can start to do the final step of any divide and conquer approach which is combining them We can actually start taking things that are individually working a little bit in mice, and especially, of course, we're talking about middle-aged mice that have already had had time to accumulate a certain amount of damage, Um, and we apply multiple things to to those mice and see what we get. So right now we have this very large experiment going on that we that we started in February, Um, and it started when the mice in question were. 19 months old. That is middle age for mice. These mice are from the strain that is most frequently used in life, in lifespan studies around the world uh, called C57 black sex. Their average lifespan in those people's hands in the absence of any intervention is about 31 months. So that means they have a year to go at the time we started. And I'm pleased to say that nine months in, um, it's going fine. No, none of the groups is, mo- is more than 50% dead. And most of them are... Um, <laughs> Only like ten or twenty percent dead, so that's that's pretty good. Um, but it's a very complicated experiment because we want to find out as much as possible by looking at these combinations. We have obviously a group that's getting all four of the interventions that we are considering, and a group that's getting and none what, of them. What,
0: what are these interventions like? What are they looking to stop? What is this uh, uh, process, and yeah, why it is it in. only four right now?
1: I'll come to that in a moment um, because I want to just finish the description of the structure of the design of the study. Um, Absolutely. So in in addition to these two groups, we have eight other treatment groups. We have four groups that are getting each one of the interventions individually, really as a validation that we're doing the experiment right, because we are, of course, following protocols from other groups that have been published. And then we have four groups that get three out of the four interventions. That's the way that we're going to find out if there are any antagonistic interactions where, whereby somehow two interventions cancel each other out some way so that some intervention with only three, um, some, some group with only three actually lives longer than the group with four. That's a definite possibility, which we wanted to make sure we catch. All right, then. So right. Um, to come back to your, quest, your your last question, what are the interventions and why, th- why those ones? Why exactly four for now? And so on. Right. So, um, First thing, what are the interventions? One of them is rapamycin, which is a well-known um, calorie restriction mimetic, perhaps has other roles yes. as well. Um, and it has been shown by many groups to extend mean and maximum lifespan, even when it is, it, it, you start giving it to mice in their diet when they're already around the same age that we started. So that's one. Second one is we're giving them heterochronic bone marrow. So basically, that means we kill a lot of young mice, you know, six months old or three months old mice, and we take their bone marrow and we essentially give a bone marrow transplant to the older mice so that some of their bone marrow thereafter is contributed by stem cells from the young mice. This is in the same kind of you know, group of interventions as the very famous um, parabiosis and plasma exchange experiments that get a lot of airtime these days. And, um, and we're very interested in those experiments, but we're also very interested in, um, in the cellular component of the, of the blood, which is kind of deprioritized by most groups at the moment, uh, but which some groups have shown to have a very good effect. Then the third, intervention is, the third intervention is gene therapy for telomerase. Now, this is actually a slightly paradoxical one, or at least it was paradoxical, um, because um, you know, telomerase is a gene that's been talked about a lot as a, as a way to get intervention. Um, but in mice, it doesn't obviously make sense because mice naturally make a lot of telomerase in most of their cells. So you'd think, you know, what are you going to give them by giving them some more? Turns out though that they are mice are so bad at protecting their DNA that, um, their telomeres get shorter anyway at a rapid rate um, uh, if, if, despite the fact that they're making telomerase. So giving them some more does help and that again, has been shown by other groups and so we're doing that. And the last one is we're giving them a synolytic. Synolytics are of course quite um, in the news these days um, compounds that selectively kill off these zombie cells that have got into this deranged state where they are not doing much or maybe they're doing the right thing to some extent but they're also... Toxic. They are pumping out nasty stuff. So it's good to get rid of that. And we're using a synolytic called Navitoclax, which has been used by a lot of groups. We are using a modified version of it that has been reported to diminish its toxicity to one particular type of non senescent cell, namely platelets. Um, But uh, essentially, we're using Navitoclax. So those are the four interventions. So then, okay, your question was why four? Um, Well, Honestly, you know, in many, many ways, experiments like this are not only really, really complicated, they're also logistically enormous challenge, enormously challenging and expensive. This experiment is costing oh, us more than, more than $3.5 million. And, um, you know, that's, that's, you can't really reduce that. So we could have gone up to five or six, but we would have needed even more mice in order to get statistically meaningful results for the effect sizes that we expect and um the comp- the, and the design of the experiment would have been even more messy so um <laughs> so yeah we, we decided four is the right number at least for, for now and it all seems to be going pretty well so we are um gearing up for the next experiment in this research program and the overall study design is going to be the same as last time as the, as the one that's ongoing now the only real uh, we we made pretty much all the decisions that need to be made in terms of uh, which interventions we're going to use next time. We've got some fine details to work out. And for sure, we know that right up until the last minute, there are surprises that we might get, whether good surprises like some new breakthrough in some other intervention, or for that matter, bad surprises like something is going to cost a lot more than we thought it was going to. And so the choices that we've made as, as of now are not 100% 100% set in stone. Um, but they're quite likely to be the ones that we're going to use. Okay. And again, now, on some features. of these, the,
0: the things you mentioned, um, I've seen in research articles before. And it seems that people are trying to hack these kind of naturally on their own in humans. Um, have you seen any of that going on? And uh, what do you think is the transferability
1: uh, with humans, then. Great question. Great question. And um, so, yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm very cognizant as well. We all in this field that mice and humans are very different species, and therefore oh, yes. the um, uh, the translatability is very doubtful. Now, I will say, however, that for these damage repair interventions, these rejuvenation interventions. I wouldn't say that rapamycin counts as a rejuvenation intervention, but the other ones certainly do. Um, I would say that these interventions are more likely to translate to humans than things that mess with organism, organism or metabolism in, you know, in ways that slow down aging. And that's really just because you know, different mammals accumulate essentially the same, different, the same types of damage. They may accumulate them at somewhat different rates, which may lead to oh, a different, different profile of what they, what, what, what they die of. But that's essentially the main thing. All right, so that's the that, first thing. The other thing about translatability is that, uh, yes, absolutely, there are early adopters out there, and I talk to them all the time, a number of them are close friends of mine. Certainly um, the most prominent one is probably Liz Parrish, who's been very close to me for a long time and whom I have enormous admiration for. Um, But of course, there are many, many others. And the point is they're doing it responsibly in a manner that will not only minimize the risk to themselves, but also maximize the information gathered that can be um, used to inform, follow on people. So that's very important. I will say one final thing though here, which is that translatability is not the only reason we're doing this experiment. We are also doing it for let's call it rhetorical reasons. We want to get a sufficiently powerful, dramatic result doing experiments of this nature. Maybe the first one, maybe not. Um, Sufficiently dramatic that the world just starts to discard its skepticism and fatalism about medical intervention in aging. For the past 25 years, I've been out there doing my very best to dismantle that skepticism. But at the end of the day... It's a very difficult thing to dismantle. It's been around since the beginning of civilization and somewhat rightly so because the fact is there's nothing we've been able to do even though there have been plenty of people over the years saying this or that thing will actually be the fountain of youth. Um, So we need to get really good data, really dramatic data in order to say no. And that data can't be improved. I really
0: want to hit on that too and especially with what you've done before here is that yeah one elixir isn't going to be the fountain of youth it's usually a combination of things that produce health and your study of course is extremely expensive and goes into four variables which in research terms is a whole lot of data (laughs) but in regular health How important are biomarkers and getting the right combination of things kind of to produce health and hopefully improve your lifespan, if not your health span? What would kind of be that formula that you've seen at some of these conferences that you've been at, kind of that integration between holistic health, nutrition, anti aging, fitness, neuroscience, functional medicine, all of this? What's kind of in your prediction, um, going to be the ultimate kind of blueprint of how to do this past four variables?
1: So first of all, in the middle of all that, you, um, use the words health span and lifespan. So that gives me the opportunity to emphasize to the audience, something that is often overlooked or distorted, especially by the media. I don't work on lifespan. I work on health. I'm a medical researcher. And the only difference between me and any other medical researcher is that the aspect of health that I work on, first of all, it affects everybody, but also it has this side effect. Because it affects everybody, if we postpone health problems, if we extend health span, then we will extend lifespan as a side effect. And some of my colleagues, are so scared of that in, that side effect that they almost apologize for it when they speak publicly, <laughs> whereas I celebrate it. I think that, you know, everyone's got a right to live as long as they like, and, of course, we want healthy life. We're not in the business of extending sick span. So then, um, in terms of um, the, 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 the rest of your question, um, I think, uh, you know, the, the, there is a... What can I say? There's still a debate going on, and it's going on both in private and in public. You know, people are still finding their feet and constantly shifting ground in terms of what they say to the wider world, uh, you know, with authority. People are terrified of, of being seen to be overpromising and under-delivering. And they shouldn't be, of course, because, um, you know, let's look at the war on cancer from 50 years ago. That was a huge case of over-promising and under-delivering. And did it do any harm to the researchers? Not in the slightest. It got things going. It got people to think about cancer as a proper medical problem that had, had a shot at being brought under control. And the fact that progress was many times slower than had been predicted did not phase people. And the result is cancer research has gone far more rapidly than it would have done if that over-optimism had not been transmitted to the wider world. Now, of course, today I'm certainly in no way suggesting that that we should be deliberately over optimistic, that we should say things that are more aggressive and um, dramatic than what we actually think. Not at all. I'm just saying that we should not have this terror that has permeated the field for so long. And of course, the Dublin Declaration is a huge step in that direction. And studies like the one we're doing will be another one. Okay, what is the Dublin Declaration? I thought you'd never ask. So, um, <laughs> um, so the Dublin Longevity Declaration, which of course can be found online either through the levf.org website or directly at DublinLongevityDeclaration.org. Um, it is a statement of optimism about the likely time frame for very substantial progress in postponing the health problems of late life and the key thing about it is that it has been signed by well over a hundred luminaries in the field true luminaries people who have unassailable credentials people who are at all of the top universities in the world and who have worked on the biology of aging for decades publishing the top journals all the time so it is completely impossible to reject it as some fringe position and this is the first time that's been done for 20 years or more I've been castigating my colleagues for not doing that as I've gone into a few minutes ago but now we've done it the statement is a little softer than I would have liked it to be but it's a hell of a it's a hell of a lot stronger than um, anything that's come before and I truly believe it can make a huge difference to breaking down the fatalism and skepticism in the wider world, and especially in the corridors of power, which is where it really needs to be broken down. The key thing that we're doing with this declaration is not only have we accumulated signatures from a huge number of um, the top luminaries in the field, we've also accumulated already a couple of thousand signatures from the general public. And we're going to continue growing that. We're going to be getting out there progressively, you know, um, growing that number, once that number gets big enough, it'll start actually making politicians not only believe that aging can genuinely be brought under medical control um, in the foreseeable future with a modest outlay of of research investment, but also that there are votes in it, which is something that your average politician cares quite a lot about. (laughs) Right, yes.
0: That was gonna be one of my leading questions from this is, out of this declaration, um, were there any kind of political entities that would be behind it?
1: No, we want, um, well, not behind as in, as in you know, designing it or sponsoring it or anything like that. No, we want no, the political no. entities to be the audience. And of course, it. that's a process. That's a process. So, you know, it's being, it is now being brought to the attention of elected representatives in the US and elsewhere. But we do not expect that that will have an immediate impact because at the moment we've only got 2,000 signatures. I mean, come on, right? However, we do expect that it will sit in the back of the minds of people who are hearing it now, such that they're going to be hearing it again and again over the coming months. And it's going to become that much easier to, if you like, soften them up to um, understand the real import and the real policy changes that are motivated by this. In your opinion, then, being behind the, poli-
0: um, behind the science for the policy, um, which countries do you think will be the early adapters and adopt this and actually move forward with uh, funding and action?
1: So there have been a few recent developments that give me some idea how to answer that question. Um, firstly, in the US, and largely courtesy of a new lobbying group called the Alliance for Longevity Initiatives, A4LI, which we kick-started and we um, support, um, there has been some legislation passed. in Only in one state so far, in Montana, But it's um, aggressive measures to try to copy it elsewhere. And this is a very important expansion of the concept of right to try. So a, a number of years ago, a federal federal legislation was passed saying that if you're terminally ill, you can access medicines that have not yet been approved. And, you know, that's good as far as it goes, but most of us would prefer not to get terminally ill before we do that. So what happened in um, Montana is that whoever you are, however healthy you are, you can access medicines that have not been approved just so long as they've got the first step towards approval in the clinic. Namely, they've passed phase one of a clinical trial, which is the one that's focused entirely on safety. If they've got through right. phase one and masses and masses of things get to phase one and then they get abandoned or they take another decade to get through all the way to approval, that kind of thing. So this is a really huge thing. And the more it gets copied, the better. So it could be the US is the answer to your question, but we're not betting on it. So, uh, of course, there's <laughs> a lot of work going on globally um, to to change this. A number of countries, especially small countries like um, Montenegro, for example, very into it. Uh, Liechtenstein. Um uh, Singapore, actually, you know that's where the person yes. who who wrote most of the text of the Dublin Declaration, Brian Kennedy, is based these days. Um, but um, also states that you haven't heard of because they are, if you like, pop up states. So um, just tomorrow, I shall be going to an island off the coast of Honduras named Roatan part of which is a special economic zone that has basically, as I understand it, complete legal autonomy with the sole exception of defence, and um, which is very focused on longevity as a destination. So on medical tourism for such purposes, things like that. It may very well be that countries like that lead the way. When things get a bit further down the road, I think it's gonna be straight up FOMO. It's gonna be like there's gonna be competition between major wealthy states simply because they don't wanna be left behind. To some extent, that's already happening in the Middle East where um, uh, the the Saudis created a new entity called Hevolution that's being funded at a level of a billion dollars per year. They actually are only spending a small fraction of that so far. They're still very much ramping up. But the simple fact that they declared it and announced it and got it going has completely changed the conversation in other Gulf states. So, um, you know, I can definitely see the FOMO coming already. Wow. Now, aren't there some countries that are in more need of this,
0: though? Uh, countries that are not repopulating and are actually running into social uh, consequences of that. Um, who do you see kind of being the, the countries that will? You will need to be on board with with this research if they're not secretly already
1: doing it. So the differences between countries are not actually as big in that regard as you might think. First of all, first of all we have to remember that there are reasons, there are opportunities to alleviate that problem at a national level that some countries just are reluctant to embrace. Japan is the obvious example. It's got a very low birth rate. It's got a very um, elderly population. It's econo- the economic consequences of that are huge. But ja- Japanese yep. culture is inherently very isolationist. So you know, it remains to be seen what they will actually do about it in terms of enhancing immigration, for example. But the other thing, the biggest thing that I want to say in response to your question is that we have to remember that even in the poorest countries of the world, even sub-Saharan Africa aging is the number one medical problem. That's because the efforts to reduce infant mortality, early life mortality, even though they still have a long way to go for sure, they have progressed to a point where there isn't a single country in the world that has an average lifespan lower than 50. So do the math, right? I mean, 50 is you know, middle age. So um, uh, So yeah, so it's the number one problem absolutely everywhere.
0: Now when you say this too, how many of that do you think is more brain-related, cognitive, functional versus maybe physical, or the connection between the two there? Uh, I'm sorry, connection between which two? Between aging being more of a physical decline, cognitive decline, Uh, or that it's both? Well, it's definitely both.
1: I mean, there's a huge mind-body connection in, in aging and of course we understand at a basic level what that connection is we understand that stress causes you know the release of hormones that are detrimental to um the rest of the body that accelerate the accumulation of various types of damage so you know it's no surprise that if you look at centenarians and you ask you know what do they have in common by far the number one thing that that they have to the greatest degree in common is stress management nothing bothers them they haven't necessarily lived particularly stress-free lives but when they do encounter a stressful situation they get through it calmly and you know yeah and so this also of course explains the medical benefits of all other manners of ways to um lower stress whether it's you know yoga or meditation or you know i have a hot tub i stare at the sky and the trees from it quite a lot and definitely (laughs) decompresses me Um, You know, everyone should find their own best way to maintain equanimity and calm. I
0: love it. I think that is such an important note to leave people off with. Um, Obviously, we can talk for days, weeks, months on this and would love to. uh, But how do people find out more information on what you're
1: doing and on the causes that you're behind right now? Yeah, the place to start, of course, is LEV Foundation's website, L for Longevity, E for Escape, V for Velocity, F for Foundation.org. Um, and I'm sure you'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, yes, you can get from there so everything you might want. There's obviously a link to the Dublin Longevity Declaration there. There is a link to our annual conference. The next conference that we we hold in Dublin will be in middle in the middle of June next year and it's a fantastic place to come it's um first of all it's got the absolute world leading speakers in every area that is relevant to biomedical gerontology and the defeat of aging it's also got a very broad audience people who are experts in the field people who are amateurs but gifted ones so to speak people who are newcomers and who get into the community that way And we emphasize very strongly the recreational aspect of the conference. We've got a lot of time for informal interactions. The bar is free every evening, things like that. So I very much encourage people to come to that as well. Perfect. Well, thank you for your time.
0: And I appreciate the wisdom, the knowledge you've explained to us. And for everyone, definitely check out these sites. They'll be in the show notes. And... For everyone listening, stay tuned to the next episode of The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. Take care.